um, you know, still just the beauty and wonder. Um, most of my most epic moments, I took great footage of, but they didn't show. Um, I they should give I you that. I also had a, a moment. Yeah, yeah, they don't, they don't do that. Um, it would jeopardize their show. I think is their their perspective on it. So yeah, those were those were. I mean, I could go on. There are a bunch of them, but um. <laughs> oh, more beautiful moments. No, no, please. Mm-hmm. What What are your other epic like things that were? I mean, because that's oh, there are so many. You can yeah, just pick a random one. Um, the, the whole place. Yeah. Okay. So, so one moment that was really, really profound early on. Um, I mean, it, the whole thing was that. Like early on, when we first launched, it was you know we had just been having our first intense frost. Um, so everything was changing. The leaves were all changing. So this super, super stark landscape. You know, a huge lake that's like a steel gray most of the time and mostly bare rock, you know, this really amazing granite and huge towering cliffs, you know, vertical cliffs. And the whole landscape is so enormous. You can't even begin to wrap your mind around it. So like this super stark landscape with these amazing just flame colors of fall, you know, and I had this moment after being out there for, you know, going on a couple weeks and not bringing in any food besides just a couple handfuls of berries and recognizing that rather than feeling weaker and weaker, I'm feeling better and better. And there was just this moment where I realized that I was shifting on a physiological level to where I was learning to be fed by beauty instead of by food. And just that, like, that all hitting me in one moment, standing on this rocky precipice, looking out over this landscape, looking out over this lake, and recognizing that even though I'm starving and I don't know how long I can keep going on starving, like, there's no place in the world I would rather be or anything I would rather be doing in that moment. And just that epic beauty being so profound that it just brought tears to my eyes. You know, I just, like, there's no way to hold all of the emotions in my body and it just came through in the form of tears um and recognizing that like i could i could live on beauty now and i could do that for a really long time and had every intention of doing so so that was a really profound moment um i had a moment where i was at my cabin working on it and heard and heard a big kerfuffle of birds you know like i I was really keyed into birds out there um, and I knew their patterns, and so I could tell that there was something unusual happening. And um, and going out to where I heard this and seeing this kind of a classic bird language moment, which was all of these birds in a shape that we call in bird language a parabola mm-hmm. around the top of this tree and looking in the top of that tree and seeing a huge um, predatory bird up there, a, a northern goshawk, I believe it was, which is specifically an avian predator. They're, they take out birds, and so there's something that birds really react to. So having that moment of, like, being keyed in enough to the landscape to think something's going on, something big is happening, and then going out there and finding the source of it and getting to see this amazing bird that I've never seen before in my life, that was a really profound one. Um, I had a really profound encounter with a fox um, that was really beautiful, um, yeah, I mean, seeing tracks, seeing wolverine tracks, you know, I'd never seen wolverine tracks, seeing lynx tracks, that was amazing, wolf tracks, I mean, all of these wildlife encounters that were creatures that I haven't had the opportunity to live in the territory of before, so, and even though the lynx tracks and the wolverine tracks were, like, dogging my trap line and potentially major competitors for my food, it was still so amazing to see that, that it, it felt worth it, you know? And so you never, um, it sounds like you just didn't feel alone at all. <laughs> 
you were interacting so How could I? So I was surrounded deeply. by life. Yeah, that it was. Yeah. It, it's like a completely different journey than other people took. Did the camera help you Apparently, feel? Apparently, which I didn't realize until watching it. Yeah, you know, like that, that... I had no idea how different my journey was to other journeys until I was watching the show and thinking, oh, my God, I had the time of my life. And these people are out here experiencing the exact same conditions in the exact same place and suffering so hard. Right. That was a really profound realization for me, just how I mean, I knew what a big difference attitude made. And, and like we talked about, you know, like a lot of my preparations were strategizing routines for myself to help me stay in a place of connection and gratitude. But it wasn't until watching other journeys, you know, other folks on my same season that I really got on a deeper level how profound a difference that was. It must have, it must have killed you to watch Jordan sit there and complain and be like, oh, I'm starving with 200 pounds of moose. <laughs> Look at this. I thought that was so funny. But it I mean, my interpretation of it wasn't that he was complaining as much as that the show was choosing to ah. take those moments out of his footage okay. to make it seem like he and I were neck and neck. Right. Um, so, you know, I have enough experience in knowing how many things I filmed and the things that they chose to show of my things in a way that misrepresented my journey that I believed that that is what they were doing with with him too sure. not misrepresented but just you know picking and choosing to get a certain impression right to um, get the story that I they wanted that Jordan was nowhere near as poorly off yeah exactly yeah because they're I mean they are it is a tv show and they are creating a story did you did the camera become like a friend to you did you when you were oh absolutely so it was like yeah. it's because it it feels like you're talking to me when I'm watching her talking to us mm -hmm. or, you know, the audience. Yeah, no, I was very aware of that. And, you know, and I don't know how different the sense of isolation would have been if I didn't have that relationship for the camera. I mean, and again, so much of my intention was around showing something beautiful to the world. That was a big part of my mission. And so in that way, I engaged with the audience perhaps more than other folks might have because I wanted to draw you in. I wanted, you know, I know that a lot of these shows, kind of what they do is like, look at this person and all their survivor skills. and They're, they're such a badass, and, you know, and like put you on a pedestal. pedestal. And that, that's not what I wanted. I wanted the viewers to identify with me and see themselves out there yeah. and doing the same thing and give them that experience. And so I engaged with the camera in that way. And, and you know, to me, the camera was an audience that I was talking to. And I think that that did a lot for my, you know, mental health out there because while I knew that obviously you weren't actually there and interacting with me and it wasn't in real time, I also knew that I was going to be sharing this. And so that kept me feeling like I was still part of human community as well as the wild community out there, even though yeah. it wasn't actually true at the time. Um, and so, yeah, so you, the camera, you know, it was a mixed blessing. Obviously, it was where a lot of my time and energy went, and a lot of that felt wasted because they showed so little of my footage. But at the same time, the camera absolutely was a companion yeah. and um, kept me aware of the companionship of the whole world of humans that were out there and eventually going to be sharing this with me. And you shared a lot of really personal stuff. I was um, specifically very connected to when you were talking about the money versus not the money and what do you want to do and the self-care on those last days. And you were talking about what you would do with the money and that you've made relationships, you've made choices for your career and for your life that haven't included other things that you would consider like adopting and all of that whole monologue section. I was just like, 
wow, I felt like, oh, same thing, the sacrificing of femininity to, to try to get ahead in a certain way, and then you look back, and you're in your 40s, and it's like, what did I do? I don't have a kid. Anyway, I don't know if that's where you're coming, but that's what I felt from it, Like, and I felt that for me. I was like, oh. God, I'm, 40, I'm 45 and look at my choices and I'm not going to have a kid and wouldn't it be great to adopt, but I don't have the money to do that and like how do you share with the world and feel like you have things to share and then there are choices that you made so those aren't the opportunities that you get and et cetera. So I felt like really connected to that and then also when you're talking about your mom and all that stuff and your childhood and I know they put that in to, you know, create a character for you. Um, but do you feel like the character that they put out, does that, do you feel represented? Do you feel like they got you or do you feel like, well, they tried? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the things that you're referring to, yes. And it's interesting because I still was really, so there's a bunch, a bunch to say about that. One is that they really encouraged us to be really vulnerable and talk about, you know, what was true for us emotionally. And part of my choice to do that was, was that. And I think that you often see people, you know, a lot of things up for people and processing a lot of your life choices. And that was true for me too. But also it was particularly specific advice of one friend who is a friend who has done the show before. I actually have a lot of friends who have done this because those are kind of the circles that I, that I move in. And he told me, you know, like this journey is so intense that you, it's really hard to do just for yourself and you want to find something, you know, a goal that's about someone that you love or something that you love or really attached to, to make the journey bigger than yourself. And, and so that's part of what prompted that conversation with my looking to that. And certainly in terms of finances, you know, I'm a person who has chosen to live under the poverty line for most of my life because I've just always prioritized different things. I've prioritized freedom and, you know, being able to have wild adventures over financial security and that's fine. But one of the goals that would make, you know, pushing it to get a bunch of money worth it would be something like being able to adopt because, again, you know, I wanted a family so bad for so much of my life and have had a lot of angst around that not happening. At the same time, it feels representative of, like, my life before alone and not as much now because I had a lot of time to think about and process those choices while I was out there and recognizing that, like, I'm so grateful to have the life that I have and the opportunities that I've had. And had I had a family, I probably wouldn't have gone out on a loan. And <laughs> that was the most amazing experience of my entire life. And I wouldn't trade it for anything right yeah. now. And, you know, so I made those choices from the authentic place that I was in when those choices were up for me. So how would I go back and change that now? So I processed a lot of my regrets while I was out there. And so when I came back out, and saw that footage, I was thinking, that doesn't represent me. Mm. But the truth is that it did represent me at one time, just not as much anymore because things have shifted. And I would also say that I'm, I'm someone who has dealt with a lot of sorrow and angst around not having had a family, but I don't think that I am a person who really, like I'm a person with a very positive forward-thinking attitude and not someone who tends to go into like woe-is-me places. Right. And so I feel like, Focusing on that maybe painted me a little bit more in that light. Um, but it definitely, I mean, anyone who knows me know that, knows that it's true that, like, not having had a family has been one of my major sorrows in life. So that's accurate. The part that really bothered me that feels less accurate is when they talked about um, 
they they did some uh, some careful editing to create some sentences that I didn't actually speak. Wow. And that was really frustrating. And that is really disappointing that, you know, to I've hear. Never... Because you filmed yeah. so much and the, stuff. The one place that that was true. Yeah. They, they had me say at one point towards the very end, I've never had enough money to eat well. And that's why I'm here. And that is like nauseating to, me, to hear because that's not true. And I felt like it painted a very different picture of who I am and, um, and it basically made me say that I was there for the money because I was desperate for money because I don't have enough money to eat otherwise, which is absurd. Um, and it is definitely true that I have lived on a lot less money than, you know, like well under the poverty line. And that that has affected some of my food choices in terms of like being able to buy all of the healthiest organic food and whatever I want all the time. And yet the way they made it say that is like that I've been so poor that I'm starving and that that was my motivation for being on the show. And that was like a complete 180 and the furthest thing from the truth. So in that way, I felt very misrepresented. And, um, you know, I've had people write me saying like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I hope you can afford to eat now. And oh, I'm just like, oh God. my God, <laughs> that's awful. And, you know, I think that overall, you know, that one part, so they, they do interviews with you before you go, when you come back and when they come and do medical checks. And sometimes they use that, those audio clips and overlay it onto your time out as if it's what you're saying in the moment. Sure. And that's what happened with that clip. And it wasn't, that was, that was a moment when I like went out to the lake to sing this beautiful song of hope and joy. And instead they did this overlay of audio saying, I'm so poor me. I'm so poor. I can't afford to eat. And I'm just here so that I can afford to get a decent meal for once. And oh. um, <laughs> I think that most people, most everyone I feel like who has written me, which is like hundreds, thousands of people, um, that part of the message is not what they can, like, I think it's clear of like my energy and most of the things that like my joy and my positivity were what came through more. And the contrast of that one sentence was, um, you know, was big enough that they don't even see that as part of my journey. It seems like most people who write, and I hope that that's true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was that's a sore spot for me. That's the one major sore spot for me. And, um, and with the whole fair enough. Um, I, yeah. Kat Plank is a person she wanted to ask a question. Um, your master's degree is in what? And uh, she says environmental science. Environmental oh, science. Sorry, I'll let you finish. Oh no! So she said mm -hmm. she's personally curious about your background. So environmental science, and it's obvious that you have mad skills that are extremely niche. Um, but how did you decide to learn those kinds of skills? And so I guess it would be when you were when you were 19, or was it when you were younger even? That you you already said at the beginning you went into a, a, a skills program, a wilderness program when you were 19. Was that when you started this journey into ancestral skills, or was it before that that you had a great interest, even like as a young child? Yeah, that's a great question. Definitely as a young child, um, I was always super fascinated like all of my favorite books you know like I had a book about Ishii when I was a kid and all of the little house books and Laura Ingalls um, Wilder's story and Island of the Blue Dolphins like ah. those were the books that I loved and you know Hatchet and that kind of thing so I was obsessed with these things as a kid and like all of my childhood games were me as Karana on the land like I would pick red clover blossoms and you know put them in a hole in the ground because I was saving up food for the winter you know that was that was what I was obsessed with. But I didn't think that those things were, you know, I thought that that was from the past and not something that was available to me. So um, 
So I, you know, I always did a lot of things with my hands. I was into sewing and knitting and crocheting and that kind of thing. And like the hand crafts that were available to me, but I didn't really have other avenues. Um, you know, like I grew up in a rural place, but you know, we weren't, we weren't, we grew strawberries and we grew a small garden, but you know, we weren't like harvesting wild food or anything. This wasn't in my, this wasn't in my background and how I was raised up. Um, but I was always looking for that stuff. And when I was, um, I think a freshman or a sophomore, I think a sophomore in college. And I went to school for biology and environmental studies. So like a deep connection to the natural world was always a part of me. And my parents were both outdoor people. My dad was a, an endurance runner doing 100-mile trail runs. And cool. my mom was a backpacker and in the Sierra Club. So I spent a lot of time hiking and, you know, out in wild places as a kid. Um, but it was when I was a sophomore in college that a friend of mine gave me a book, um, The Tracker by Tom Brown Jr., um, where he kind of talks about using these skills in his childhood um, coming into relationship with the land. And that was really inspiring to me. And so when I wanted to do a field course one summer, I specifically looked for one um, that might have some, some of those skills and found, um, found one that had instructors who had taught some ancestral skills. And so I chose the course based on that. And that's not what the focus of the course was, but it was a big focus for me because that was where my interest laid. Um, and then they told me about a skills gathering that they had been to that was all focused on ancestral skills. And so I went to that and that was um, when I was 19. And so that was what really showed me that in fact, this was something that was still available that people were still doing. And then from that point on, I just threw myself into it wholeheartedly and definitely kind of had like fantasies about running off naked into the wilderness, you know, with just my knife and living there forevermore. And um, my first gathering was when I was introduced to buckskin clothing and that completely changed my life and became my biggest goal was to, you know, learn to tan hides and make clothing for myself. And um, so, yeah, from that point on, anytime I wasn't in school, I was, I was out in the woods by myself doing skill stuff um, or going to gatherings whenever I could and spending summers on some land in Idaho with a bunch of folks who were teaching and practicing skills and, you know, organizing Stone Age trips and harvesting wild food and just, you know, learning as much as I could in every possible way. Um, and, you know, then I had, then I had a period in my early twenties where I kind of, where I was in, involved in a relationship and with my first husband and um, that wasn't really the life that he wanted to live. And I felt like I ended up compromising a lot on how, how I was living for, for love, you know, for that relationship. And um, that was how I ended up in grad school actually was kind of trying like not, not being happy in the normal working world. And I was working, you know, interesting jobs. I was doing environmental ed and working as a naturalist in a state park and doing cool stuff, but it just wasn't, me it wasn't the life that I wanted I wanted something so much more wild and rugged and um really had this period of feeling like I compromised so much of myself and lost myself and became really deeply depressed and um even suicidal we have and, like the um, same story it's tripping and- me out but keep going <laughs> wow yeah yeah it's a I think it's a common one um so yeah so I spent a lot of my 20s compromising on what I wanted to do. And then eventually um, I was in grad school when I kind of, I don't know, like came to a place where I realized that like my soul was dying and I couldn't, I couldn't do what I was doing anymore and ended up, you know, leaving my husband, quitting grad school. I, I had enough 
credits to get my degree, but I quit my thesis, so I ended up graduating with a non-thesis science degree, which means you can't really work in academia. You can do a lot of other things, but you're not going to ever go on to be a professor or anything um, or a researcher. But um, but I, it was pretty clear that I didn't want to anyway at that point. So yeah, so I ended up you know quitting grad school, leaving my husband, and moving away from my like you know easy house outside of town and running off to northern Ontario um, with someone that I met at a friend's wedding who was about to go out on this crazy journey and um, living up there for a while until the Canadian government kicked us out. <laughs> and from that moment on, just really absolutely devoted to living my life and not compromising on that again and living a much wilder, less conventional life. Um, but yeah, I've, I came to that through compromising and trying to, you know, quote, be normal and live a normal life for a while and just being absolutely miserable and feeling trapped and, um, yeah. And you, you gave know, up learned, the safety. Learned the hard way. You gave up the safety for your gave truth. Up the safety for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, I did yeah. the same thing. I was married for a long time and, and I left him and all, it's very, very similar story, very depressed, trying to, blah, 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 and now I do what I want. Yay! So I'm glad that you, yeah, I have and like, I think it's, it's been gratifying because, yeah. Oh, I just have, a, I have a couple more questions for you because we've been going for an hour and I don't want to take up too much of your time because you're so awesome. But I mean, I, I want <laughs> to take up all of your time, but I don't, I also don't want to, you know, so finish your thing. And then I have like two more questions. Oh, I was just going to say that at the time, I think it was hard, you know, it was like quite devastating for my husband. We're still very good friends. He's a wonderful man. But, you know, I think at the time he never really believed me about why I was dissatisfied and how I said I wanted to live. Um, and, you know, because I was not doing those things. I had been compromising. So it's like, yeah, you say that. But but I think now and especially after alone now, he's like, okay, yeah, I, I get it now. I get the, what you were saying all along of what you actually needed and wanted. Yeah, it makes more sense now. <laughs> 73 so it's gratifying days. in that way, but like, yeah. Uh, so have you ever thought of going back to your Arctic Peninsula, like during the summer? I would love to. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd love to. I mean, once, once I have a little bit more space in my life, that is definitely um, a, very much a goal. I intend... I intend to do so. I also intend to spend some time on that lake, places where one can actually catch fish and just gorge on trout. <laughs> yeah, I saw those beautiful fish. Um, okay, so yeah. my last question, it might be totally inappropriate, but, and I can cut it out of the interview <laughs> if you want. Okay, the way I came to the show, because I, I'm a stand-up comedian, I watched the show <laughs> And I was like, I don't, I don't watch porn. It's not my thing. So I'm not into it. But I was watching alone because it hits all of my triggers. Like, it's like emotional lumberjacks crying. It's like survival starving. It's like all the Laura Ingalls Wilder stuff I love. So I made this like big long joke that I've done on stage about how it's my porn and I, I masturbate to it when I'm alone, quote unquote, right? So my question is, That's great. when you're out there and we're at the base of humanity, was there any like sexy time? Did it not even enter your head at all? Or was there any like, I mean, were you so, I'm just, because I'm, I'm thinking about ancestral skills and I'm thinking about people used to live out there and babies were made yeah. and this is a part of being human. <laughs> right. I mean, I was isolated the whole time. Um, but 
Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I don't, I, I think probably differently than you experience it. Cause to me, it's my norm. You know, I think that often things that people eroticize are things that are like outside of their norm and therefore exciting. And so in that way, that, that experience wasn't, but there is definitely something about that, like that primal energy of being out on, you know, in a wild place and um, experience things in the way it's very, you know, it's very physical. It's very rooted in the body and it's, you know, the like life and death and like getting down to the nitty gritty of life. And sure there's, there's a sexual energy in there. And, uh, and yeah, no, that like towards the end where I had been starving. And just so you know, like I tend to be kind of a no hold barred kind of person. I'm, I'm pretty, um, <laughs> I'm a pretty open book, so this doesn't feel inappropriate, but um, you can edit it out if you think. No, no, I, I'm fine with it. But I yeah, watched no, the whole poop. I watched the whole poop video and I was like, it's scintillated. <laughs> like, I watched right. the whole 22 yeah, minute poop yeah. video. I was like, all right. right. <laughs> yeah. No, I tend to just talk about the stuff that needs talking about. So whatever. But yeah, no, I mean, I would say that like that, uh, there wasn't like more sexual energy for me out there than there would be otherwise, but it wasn't absent um, until towards the end when I had been really starving for a long freaking time. Cause you know, like starting to digest your own muscles kind of takes it out of you. Right. Right. <laughs> There's actually a moment where, when they were out for a medical check and uh, I, I somehow like this happens to me where I will say something and not realize the connotation of it afterwards. But there was something where I like invited one of the people to spend the night in my cabin with me, one the, which like obviously it was not going to happen. But like, and, and the, the film people were kind of like, "Ooh, should we like be present for this conversation?" And then I was like, "Oh, that did sound like that, didn't it?" But uh, <laughs> do you want to spend the night but, um, in my yeah, that, wilderness that cabin? <laughs> I think it was like just after I had made the bed or something. They're like, "Oh yeah, that looks pretty cozy." And I'm like, "Heck yeah, it is. You know, try it out." Um, something <laughs> like that. But I always, I always laugh that everybody was like, everybody turned a little bit red after that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, well, I, this has been amazing. Can you like plug Buckskin Revolution? Give us your website, your YouTube, what you, you know, how people can, like, do you have a book? Can Have you read, have you written a book yet? When's your book coming out? Like, <laughs> Um, I have I have several book projects in the works right now. Um, so yeah, there's a lot that I can say about all of that. So my business is Buckskin Revolution, and um, you know the mission of my business is to empower people with the skills to you know, tend to their needs with their own two hands and from the landscape around them. And so it's about, it's about ancestral skills. And it's also about applying those skills, like having those skills, even if we don't use them, but knowing that we have them changes how we are in our daily life and comes, has us coming from a place that is uh, feeling empowered rather than feeling trapped in the system and feeling like a whole person who is actually using the, the physiology that we evolved to have. Um, and also, you know, just recognizing ourselves as wild creatures and with a profound relationship to the wild. So having things in our daily lives, whatever they might be, that remind us of our connection to landscapes outside. You know, you might not need to go out and forage your own food every day, but could you have a little, you know, a buckskin bag hanging on your wall where you know that it came from a wild creature and therefore it's kind of an anchor for the wild in your life, even if you're living in an apartment building in the Bronx, you know, wherever you find yourself, can you, can you integrate a little bit of the wild into your life? Um, so, you know, connection to the landscape around us, connection to who we are 
on a deeper level, connection to our human community, connection to our ancestors, um, and skills for actually land-based living, you know, um, growing, storing, um, food, medicines, all of those things. So, um, and part of my mission really is to spread those as far and wide as I can. And that's why I've been focusing more on, um, you know, videos and online courses and writing recently. And I've, you know, have traveled around the country teaching this stuff for the past several decades. Um, that's been a huge part of my life. And that's really rewarding to me. And I intend to keep doing it. But these days, since the bigger platform um, and the publicity of a loan, a lot more people are interested in what I'm doing. So I'm trying to, um, to branch into the video stuff to make it more accessible to people who couldn't come and do a class in person. So there's a lot of ways to be involved in what I'm doing. Um, I have an online skills gathering happening right now. Last week is going to be the last week to register for that. But that's uh, an entire you know, week's worth of classes spread out over 10 weeks of all of the skills like we're talking about, all of the background that, um, that you know, prepares you for more time in the wild and more land-based living. Um, also, I have a Patreon membership, which is a, a crowdfunding platform, but it's a membership-based, so you're, you know, um, you're part of a team, basically the Buckskin Revolution Patreon team. So that is a huge part of allowing me to do a lot of the videos and writing, and eventually I'm hoping to be able to hire people to help me with my video editing because I can only – I'm doing everything myself right oh, now, and there's yeah. only so much I can produce, so I could get a lot more out there if I had more support um, and able to, to hire folks to support me in that. So check me out on Patreon. That is www.patreon.com backslash Wonia Buckskin Revolution. And you get all kinds of benefits for that. And it's a lot more interactive and reciprocal and, you know, exclusive content and, you know, merchandise for certain things, your name in my books and getting to ask questions and a lot more, a lot more interaction. Um, so I really encourage people to do that. That's a huge part of what supports me right now in being able to do this stuff. Um, the mailing list on my website will get you um, in my system so that you get my newsletters, which has my teaching schedule. Um, obviously, most of my in-person teaching has been canceled um, due to COVID, but I will be getting back to that. And I also do mentoring through um, Sage FM, which is a which is a mentoring platform where folks can call in and do um, live video and phone consultations. And so that's a way to you know get one-on-one -on -one help with your skills um, and you know like I can walk you through brain tanning you can ask questions about alone you can ask questions about I just had a great conversation last week about how to keep a positive attitude in the face of challenges and adversity um, so yeah I'm really trying to do what I can to make a positive impact on the world and um, also you know social justice is a part of, of buckskin revolution and a part of the revolution and so trying to make these skills more accessible to more people because I feel like you know, there are a lot of people who are disenfranchised and yeah. don't have access to even just getting out into the woods and nature. So trying to do what I can to spread access in more ways so that more people, you know, feel empowered and feel like they have some control over their, their lives and their choices and they're not just pawns in a system that they don't understand um, and, you know, can't control, which, like, I get because that's how I felt in my 20s when I was trying to plug into the system and it wasn't working for me. Um, yeah. You're what amazing. Else? I'm on Instagram and Facebook. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, there are so many ways to be involved in what I'm doing. And, yes, I do have a couple books. My Patreon members have access to my writing before it's published. Wow. For many years, I was selling the rough draft of my book about buckskin clothing. Right now, the only way that you can get that is if you're a Patreon member. At certain levels, you get that rough draft copy of my book that's 
close to published, but not there yet. Um, you get that for free at certain levels, or you get to buy it for a discounted rate at other levels. So, um, yeah, working hard to pump a lot of good resources out there into the world so we have a society of happier, healthier, more whole, more empowered, more inspired, and inspiring people. Yay! This has been, like, <laughs> the highlight of my whole like I can't even tell you this is a dream come to fruition I never thought you're a real person doing real things <laughs> ah. I am. yeah there are all, the other things we didn't get into are like your philosophies on entitlement and like feminism and stuff but maybe another time this has been incredible and I thank you so much for your time and I and I can't wait to see what happens next um with you and buckskin revolution and everything else online and everybody join the patreon and thank, thank you so much for talking to me on mutiny radio uh and i I'm hope so that glad we can, to thank you so much for asking yeah i hope we can promote anything that you're doing in the future again this has been like thank you so much have a beautiful rest of your day enjoy <laughs> the sunshine thank you and i thought the cat was alive i'm sorry <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, no problem. Right. Well, yeah. thanks so much for your time, and I hope to talk to you again someday thanks, soon. Sam. Have a great day. Bye. Sounds great. Yep, we'll be in touch. Yep, all right. Bye. <laughs> that, that was Ronia Dot. Ronia Thabot, everyone. You can see her online on uh, on Facebook. Her fan page is uh, Ronia Dawn. And that has been an awesome interview and I'm so proud of myself because I didn't cry. I didn't cry. All right. So call me Tim, everyone. I've been Pam Benjamin. That was Winnie Adon. This is MutinyRadio.fm. Hey, hit up our uh, Venmo. Mutiny Radio, all one word. Let's watch a full-length movie on you. on a lark and peeing in the park. You should follow me on Twitter. It's jokes to Carl. That's the duh of Francais, not the duh of dumbass. But never mind that. Don't follow me now. Follow me later. I mean, for right now. Ah, let's watch a full-length movie on you. L-M-O-Y-T. What a bunch of letters. Welcome to Let's Watch a Full-Length Movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman and Carl. Hi, Carl. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That is our acronym, and you can find our podcast with that. You can find our Twitter feed with that acronym. You can find us on our YouTube channel, which is terrific. And, uh, oh, I don't know. We're on Facebook as Let's Watch a Full-Length Movie on YouTube. We uh, stream our show first on mutinyradio.fm, which is uh, on the internet, internet radio. Yeah. And you can hear us every Sunday, 
2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You want to make a day of it? Why don't you listen to the show before us at noon? It's called The Edge of Insanity. It's hosted by Paul Brumbaugh. And Carl, what's the movie today? What are we watching? We are going to watch The Taking of the Pelham 1, 2, 3. But... 1998, okay? Yeah. Not 1974, not the current one. Wait, wait, wait. The Taking of uh, the Pelham 1, 2, 3. 1998. So the one with Denzel, it was not the first remake? It was the second remake of this movie? Yeah. It was one in 1998. That's right, exactly. Now, you want to... Oh, I'm a- Pelham is P-E-L-H-A-M, and you want to write out the letters, one, two, three, in the English words, and then put in 1998 okay. so you get the right one, because there's choices. And we yeah, like real one. channel Gregorian Barada, B-U-R-A-D-A, Gregorian Barada. All right, sounds good. So we want you to watch this movie and listen to our podcast at the same time to truly experience us. Uh, and we also, we have no sponsors today, but we want you to make a donation to Mutiny Radio for being the best. And yeah. we give it up, of course, to uh, Pam, Bam Benjamin, the station Bam manager, Pam Benjamin, <laughs> for making everything happen. So why don't you go to Venmo and donate some money to at Mutiny Radio. And then that's all it. And also, we want you to subscribe to The Edge of Insanity because not only is uh, Paul Brumba the uh, show, host the show before us, he's also going to do the countdown for us today to count down us hitting go. We want you to hit the link for the Taking a Pen, Pell Ham 123 XBiz MP3, uh, hit pause, move the slider to 000. And when Paul says go, we want you to hit the play button with us. Uh, of course, uh, Paul's not here right now, so we do have the next best thing, the Paul Brumbot. Uh, <laughs> Carl, if you may. Yes, here comes the Brumbot. All right, so let's get started. I am, I am ready. It was a live show. We're very excited to have Paul here as our countdown gentleman. Let's get ready to Brumbot. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to Brumbot. Okay, so let's get ready to Brumbot. And now... What you've all been waiting for, master of the descending numerals. The countdown king himself. Would you please welcome Mr. Paul Brumbaugh? All right, guys, you know the drill. Put that finger right over that triangle and do it in three, two, one, go. Uh, I love how uh, fake movies, uh, when you watch my TV, they'll say this film has been edited for content and for time restrictions. Yeah. As if you're a real movie. Right. Right? It was written. It was made for TV. Yeah. Yeah, so what's up with that? Oh, too soon, Carl. Oh, no, that's not the World Trade Center. There it is. Oh, there's the World Trade Center. Over the bridge. We saw it. Yeah, 1998, you started off in the New York skyline. You know what's going to go next. That's right. There was the uh, 96 bombing had happened. Right. Well, this is the subway system. This is the famous 1974 Walter Matthau movie about, I never really understood it, Carl. A bunch of criminals decide to hold up a subway? Yeah, they, uh, the Pelham line. It's uh, one, the Pelham, it's the one train, the two train, or the express, the three. Oh, 
Oh, wow, gosh, they are really ambitious. They're taking all the trains. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow, they sound like my commute. Working, huh? I got to take the Pelham one, and then two, and then three. By the way, this font is courtesy of Blender Magazine, 1997. Look at that. That's 90s font. Yeah, it is 90s font. It really is. Yeah, and Lorraine Bracco. Yep, that's right. Oh, so she's the Sopranos therapist. Yes, she, this is clearly uh, pre-Sopranos, and uh, it is also, uh, I think it's pre-Goodfellows. It must be. No, no. 90, you were talking about 1998, so Goodfellows is in the 91. Yeah, 90 or 91. Best known for her performance is Karen Freeman Hill in the 1990 Martin Scorsese film Goodfellas. So, yeah, this is long after that, but way before Sopranos. This has a, oh, God, what was that movie with the the bicycle movie where Michael Shannon's the bad guy and it's, uh, uh, shit, the kid from Third Rock from the Sun. And he's like a quick, he's like a superstar bike messenger at the save the day. I, you know what, it'll come to me. (laughs) Okay, now, the first thing we saw, see, is one of the criminals, and the very first thing he does is sneeze. That's important to the to, oh. to the plot. Well, if I can spoil this movie, I've seen the original. That's the way Walter Matthau recognized <laughs> the villain, because the villain sneezes on the phone, and then he talks to him at the end of the movie, and he has the same cadence to sneeze. Right. Now, when he sneezes in the 1974 one, the, the main bad guy looks at him like, you know, you idiot, right? And right. so yeah. Mr. Matthau's character notices, hey, listen, did you hear that? Yeah. But that doesn't really happen in this one. Huh. I found that charming. You know, sometimes movies are fun when it, it doesn't seem like it's an amusement park ride where everything is mechanical. You know, like a human error occurs, and that's the downfall. You know, that's something unexpected like that. Point. Yeah. Like, that seems more natural. So I always like that movie about it. Oh, I feel like I could smell the scent of the subway already. <laughs> this movie is pretty good. Now, did you see the two no, kids? No yeah. Is that, is that gonna the younger one is also a pre-Sopranos actor. Oh, is it uh, The Sun? Yeah, it's... it's um. It's not the son. It's a. He was only in one episode of The Sopranos. It was a flashback to when Tony was a kid. Oh, I gotcha. So when was The Sopranos? You sent me. You really do act like it was before. It was after 1998. Well, like, I, I don't would think know it was when concurrent. The Sopranos started. Um, Let me let's see if I. That's in the 90s. Let me. Uh, do my Ask HBO, my HBO program. HBO, tell me more about The Sopranos. With pleasure. Thank you for your question. I was built to answer that question. The Sopranos is the highest singer in a choir. Oh, well, there. <laughs> is that helpful to you? <laughs> According to Wikipedia. If I wanted Wikipedia, I would go ask fucking Wikipedia. Yeah, I would go browse to Wikipedia. Yeah. You cheater. 
those voice uh, control devices, they're like, you know, cramming the information the night before. Well, according to wikipedia.com, yeah, F. Can't get a book? <laughs> All right, so a bunch of shady people are waiting for the uh, subway. Yeah, That's and the truth is, this here. is not the New York City subway. This was all shot in Toronto. Oh. Well, yeah, because you, you want a New York City movie without any flavor of New York City. Right, exactly. Oh, except her, right here. You see her? She's a flavor of New York yeah. City. She was born in Queens. Oh, yeah. So she's making this movie authentic. Yes, as is this guy who's right now getting held up. Nice. Oh, so they only have the New York actors as the drivers in it. Oh, I guess a couple people in the control room booth will be like, "What's going on?" No, they do the New York act. No, not her. Her. This she. That's Mrs. Brown. Ms. That's Mr. Brown. Believe it or not, and she is actually all about Canada. She wormed her way into this production. Nice. I like that. It's a diverse crowd. You got Americans and Canadians. Now, uh, we should mention that uh, usually if you watch a television show on cable, they have what they call a bug, which is a little logo that's in the corner of your screen. Yeah. But uh, we got to give it up to Gregorian Baruda for providing us a movie with the blurred screen. Oh, he sneezed. Yeah. Uh, so before. Do you remember wiping your nose with your gun back when you could? Yeah, before COVID, I used to wipe my nose with my gun. Didn't worry Me about too, but I, I was holding. Yeah, I was holding a Pelham four five six, you know, because uh, <laughs> in real life that was that was a subway to do. The um, this movie's so on one two or three. The Pelham one two three. You're not from New right. York, but so you kind of are. I've never seen the first taking of Pelham 1, 2, and the, the sequel, the uh, taking of Pelham 1, 2, 2. So I'm hoping this movie is better. You know, I don't want to get too confused because I've never now, seen the first two a, films. He is a subway driver who who's, like, disgruntled. He got fired, you know. So he's why... Take it up. Uh, he, that's why he's part of this plot. Oh, I see. Is he going to get on the loudspeaker? I'm having a bad day. He is going to get on the loudspeaker, and he is going to freak out. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Right, all the passengers are going to hear. <laughs> bad day. What? The loudspeaker said what? So... I guess he's not going to get on the loudspeaker. He is going to talk to the cops. Um, and now this is our Denzel Washington, Walter Matthau cop, right? Oh, no. He's exactly. Gonna, oh, look at that. <laughs> that cat has a mask. No, he doesn't. This is he's a Toronto copy. City um, subway car. It's just not a New York City subway car. Now, even though I know New York real well I, I didn't notice that until they told me like the New York City ones they sort right. of look like the seats at McDonald's uh, they're hard plastic with uh, orange colored uh, seat and kind of look like a pillow almost yeah usually there's McDonald's foods on the, on the seats 
So these are retired okay. Toronto TTC subway system cars, and they were shipped to the scrapyard the day after the filming was over, still disguised as huh. New York cars. Oh, so they didn't go to the wrap party, the cars? They it's just not. immediately sent them to the shipyard? Now, this is Edward Almost, and he's a cop, and for some reason, he's already in the subway. He's like on the transit oh, yeah. or something weird. And they're noticing that Pelham that, has stopped. Is that the subway nerve system? I guess. The, the, yeah. So he's just trying to, it's weird thing almost. He looks young, even though it was 1998. Yeah. Yeah. I remember him from uh, Blade Runner. That's how I got to know him. Okay. But wasn't he dressed up as an old man in that movie? That was 82. And then he's in the sequel, I think. Yeah, he is in Blade the Runner twenty. Right, twenty forty nine. They should have called that twenty forty nine and twenty fifty because that was one long movie. <laughs> yeah, that movie was going yeah. great. It was going great, yeah. and then all of a sudden, it said, "Yeah, we're gonna suck for the rest of the film." Hey, do you guys like Terrellato? We don't either. Here he is. <laughs> great. They wait like two hours into the movie before bringing in Jaron Leto because you can't get your money back. You sat through two years of the movie, buddy. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know he was in this movie. <laughs> Sorry, man. I got Joker insurance. We're not paying you back. Okay, so they detach the other car, and they're just in one car. Now, in real life, it's two cars because... Toronto subway cars were like that. You have to have two cars attached. I don't know why, but they'll trick us throughout the film to make us think this is one cab, one car. Technically, there's only Pelham 1-2 in this movie, but they're, they're using movie magic to make okay, it look like so Pelham 1-2-3. Mike, 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 the way it works is there is a track of no, yes. a line of track called Pelham. It's called the Pelham line, right. okay? And you could get on right, one of three cars there. You can get on two local cars, the one or the two. But if a three comes along, it's only stopping at certain stations. So the Pelham one, two, three is all the cars that run along. I got you. So it's not three train cars on one connected together. It's three different lines. Correct. No, it's not three different lines. It's one line, but there's three different types Uh of trains, three different types of trains. Oh, I got you. Perfect. And are they friends with Thomas the Tank Engine? Or am yes, I wrong they are. That? Two okay. locals and one express, oh. and the locals are friends with Thomas. Okay, Oh, that's now, so sweet. Vincent D'Onofrio, I don't know how to say it. He's uh, Gomer Pyle yeah, from please. Full Metal Jacket. He's letting it yeah, be known they've sure. been hijacked. Oh, that's not nice. Is that the guy that, is he the Hulk? No, that's Mark Ruffio. Right. Ruffle chips. He looks like the Hulk, doesn't he? I guess he did Men in Black. Yeah, Men in Black. He's He's a bug in Men in Black. I guess he was good as Gummer Pile, too. That was a pretty good movie. It really was. (laughs) And um, he was the Gomer Pile character was a thin, skinny, redneck kind of guy. 
But when um, yeah. uh, the director, what's that famous director's name? When he saw this guy, he said it would be better if he was chubby right. and clumsy. That's how this guy got his gig. That gig. It's launched a career for him. Yeah, well, it's an intense, uh, intense role and intense preparation. And, yeah, he uh, wouldn't be on Law & Order man. if it wasn't for that. God, I think the last time I watched that movie was on a double video cassette. Uh-huh. You know, it's been a while. I just... It's an intense movie. You don't, you know, you don't have to see it every day. You know what's funny is it is two movies, right? It's the movie at boot camp, right, yeah. and the movie in Vietnam. It's two movies. Yeah, but that's what's so great about it is that the preparation it gives you it has nothing to do with what actually happens. You know, it's uh, to dehumanize you to the point where you attack back and then you uh, are sent off to this kind of crazy war. Anyway, I don't know what this has to do with Tone One or Two or or the Express, huh? Yeah, I think that was the three. Nothing. Can you okay, imagine so being in Toronto in rush hour and there's only a two-car train that shows up at 5.15? At You're like, fuck you. Anyway, yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm computer complaining. <laughs> well, no, we just missed uh, the line supervisors, like, getting frustrated. Why isn't he moving? I'm going down there. So he's going down there in person. Now, this guy, uh, is it's his lucky day, even though he doesn't know it. He's being told to go get the other passengers from the other train and walk them off of the tracks. So he's basically getting to go. Now, she stands up and says, I got to go. I have a doctor's appointment. And he's like, no way, no way. Then she says, this happened to me on the Long Island Railroad two years ago, and I can't take it again. So that must be a reference to Colin Ferguson. Oh, tell me, what was up with Colin Ferguson? Colin Ferguson in 96 was a guy who went batshit crazy and shot up a bunch of people on the LIE. And his court case was very famous. And he represented himself like an idiot. Um, And, you know, you didn't hear of that shooting, I guess. You were... Deep in Frisco by that time. 98, I was deep in Frisco. That's right. Yeah. I wasn't really uh, involved in Long Island Expressway. Right. Well, I mean, you certainly heard of like, um, uh, it was around the time of like, um, what is it? What is it? Amy, what's her name? Uh, Butterfusco. Amy Fisher. Amy, it was right? around the time of Amy Fisher and Donnie Bonafuco, whatever his name is, and this took a yeah, little bit Donnie of press time away from those guys. Colin. Yeah, I'm familiar with Joey Bonafuco and uh, Amy Fisher, the Long Island Lolita, but I'd never heard of Colin Ferguson, the Long Island Lolita killer. Joey Bonafuco. That's right. That's right. L I the L I E D O A. The lights went yeah, out. The third everybody doctor. out. They cut the power, and everyone got super scared. A, jittery. Every, yeah, have you ever been in a bar when it shuts down? People freak out. Yeah. <laughs> I can't breathe. Yeah. I get it. We're underwater. Sucks. Now, he's Mr. Blue. Just like uh, Reservoir Dogs, they all have colors. So that we're looking right now well, is Mr. Cute. Green, and he's setting up uh, motion detectors. Now, now, Pelham 1974 also had the colors. That came before Reservoir Dogs. 
Yes. And Quentin Tarantino has so, to admit to something he didn't invent, right? <laughs> well, it's all in the spirit of you know, the cultural appropriation. No, not even that. It's re uh they're uh remixing. He's remixing existing uh popular tropes. Yes, I suppose so. Yeah. Yeah. He's not ripping off Hall of Sale. He's ripping off Hall of Sale, but for a reason. Now, this guy is your typical, I'm a New Yorker. I'm the head of something in New York, so I'm all mad all the time. Good morning, Pelham. That's right. He's like, what is this? He's screaming. Pelham. Pelham. Answer me. <laughs> yeah, hi. Long time listener, first time caller. I love <laughs> listening to Pelham123. This is Gomer Pyle. <laughs> I'm here for the whole cockpit. What do you mean, Mark Ruffalo? Here we go. Here. Do you know that Taz Halloween hey. personally coming down there to fry your? We have taken your train. He... We have taken your train. Holy shit! What are you? This must be the taking of Pelham One Two Three. Yeah, I take that train every day to work. Which one? The first, the one or the two, or do you think the express? The three. The three, the three yeah. Uh, yeah. I like how there's no one in there on the subway. What exactly do you mean? Yeah, always something bad. Are you the operator? Negative. Then who are you? Do I look like Mary Thomas? What? We are heavily armed. Heavily armed. We have hostages. Uh -huh. And we're in a bad mood. And we have $20 in our PayPal account. Things are going to get fucked up. <laughs> now, they wow. split those papers, Mr. Green, Mr. Blue, Mr. Brown, and Mr. Gray. And only Mr. Right. Green's real name do we get to hear. Like in... The 1974 one, we learn all of their names, um, but in this one, it's only this guy. His name's Herbert Langman. He's at the end. They go to his apartment, you know. One of the henchmen is like, come on, Herbert. We got to take over this train. Don't use my name. I'm so sorry, Mr. Langham. I'll never do that again. So now he's calling his old partner, um, Lorraine Bracco saying, you know, she's like, how are you liking the transit department? Things not enough for you there? And he goes, it's pretty real right now. We got a hijacking. Get down here. And she's like, I'll be right there. Now, These guys, are, did they just shoot one day? Like, did they almost just go into that one set and they're just like, go nuts. You would think with her accent that she's all New York, but she lived in France in 74. She was a fashion model, and she lived there for like 10 years. Um, and when she was she was modeling, this guy, his name's Mark Camoletti, I don't know, offered her a, a, a role, a major role in, for one of his plays in a film, 
and she took it for the money. She said it was a boring experience. Her performance was terrible, but everybody liked her. Uh, and she did two other French films just for the money. That's how she didn't even want to oh, be in movies. Just for the money is a great French film. Delightful. Oh, really? <laughs> Should I put it in my. Well, and what about this? And what about this movie? She did it for the, the, the experience? I think she was a movie star by this point, and she was a working actress. But in the 80s, she was a disc jockey for Radio Luxembourg. That's so crazy. Yeah. The soprano therapist or the radio DJ? And now if it's Luxembourg, I guess she was speaking French. I'm sure she's fluent in French. Yeah. She was one yeah, of the uh, actresses wow. they considered for Catwoman. You know, that uh, um, Tim Co Tim Burton's uh, Batman. Yeah, Batman Returns. Right, but she turned them down. Wow, she turned down Batman? Yeah, what that, that cuckoo bird was uh, going for the part, remember? And she turned them down. No, Cuckoo Bird, I know who you're referring to. You're talking about Sean uh, Young. Who, yeah, right. For me, it's just the same as Cuckoo as anyone else. Yeah, she uh, made homemade audition tapes for the first movie mm -hmm. and sent it out and went public. But I don't think she was even in the running by the second. So, oh, no, maybe you're right. Maybe she did it was for Catwoman. That's well, weird uh, Tim Burton's uh, Batman was the one with Danny DeVito, and that was the Catwoman one. Oh, right. And she yeah, so showed have... up in person to audition. Officer, uh, what's going so on? Can you see him on the payphone? Yeah. Well, I be right called him on the radio, and they said, listen, we got to tell you something sensitive. Phone in. And that is that the train's been hijacked. So the one subway guy who's going down there to see what's going on, they're like, go stop him, you know. So he's right. going to get on the tracks. Good for him. He was able to use a payphone without wiping it down. That's really good. It's pre-COVID. Well, it's also like pre-broken payphone every every station oh i see what you're saying well this is toronto yeah when was the last time you used, there's still payphones in uh uh bart stations like if you ever needed a payphone you should go to a, a subway station really that's actually Someone very good yeah because i don't know you know i used to walk around with quarters in my pocket all the time for the phone now here's Michio Kaku. Okay, it's not Michio Kaku. Okay. okay, now we have like fake analysis of uh, Mr. Blue's mentality. You know, he's a mastermind. He's got everything planned down to the second. It's really quite ridiculous. He uh, he's mellow he's melancholic he's uh, depressed he uh, he has depression he likes the ocean you're just associating things with the word blue no no he's a Smurf uh, he uh, he's a Krishna uh, I'm gonna be late for my doctor's appointment 
The the kid's got to go pee. Yeah, it's unpredictable. Well, I'm just saying yeah. that you should let him go. That's all. Nobody's supposed to talk. Is it number one or number two? Mr. Brown is getting upset. Uh, maybe it isn't right now. Maybe I'm wrong. But when he does go, it's a number one. Okay. Well, I mean, you, how many times have you seen this movie? I this is my only my third time. Uh, we uh, we kind of rushed oh. to. Okay. Yeah, now we have Mr. Gray, and Mr. Gray is the founding member of New Kids on the Block. Oh, that's Donnie W. Yeah. And that's Wahlberger. Yeah. And I love. Have you ever watched that show, Wahlburgers? That's a great show. It's like the one half hour advertisement after another half hour advertisement. But Donnie gets involved, and Jenny McCarthy, his wife, comes up. They come up with a Jenny burger. And she doesn't <laughs> Jenny like it. McCarthy is his wife. Oh my God. <laughs> That's perfect for him. He's, and she's all over like Wahlburgers, you know, because they'll be like, Wahlburgers is their other brother who's a cook and their mom, and they go into the franchise business. And so they have this one, you know, signature restaurant, and that's what the reality show is based on. And this is a real. Uh, they came up with the. Yeah, it's not that interesting, but it is kind of interesting. You know, it's one of those kind of reality shows where you, yeah, it doesn't really matter if you're watching it, but it's kind of it's all right. Well, my research showed him as being part of the Saw films. Um, he was yes, in the band of others. Like deputy. Yeah. Because it was uh, Danny Glover in the first movie and then Wahlberg in the second movie, like playing a depressed cop trying to chase after Jigsaw. I, I have never I seen too. a Saw film. I've never seen it. You never see Saw? I never saw That's Saw. Good. I've seen them all. And there's going to be another one, Spiral, with Chris Rock and Sam Jackson. Mm-hmm. Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, oh my God, those are some know, right? high-powered names for a Saw part blah blah. Yeah, movie, blah. Right? Wow. Well, that that horror sequel, I think they made like six Saws, and then there was Jigsaw, which is kind of a spin on it, where there's like a new uh, mastermind. I learned a lot from those movies. I always take notes. Like for example, if you wake up and your head's in the aquarium filled with uh, used hypodermic needles. Best to swallow your tongue than to shake your, to cut your arm off. It's just you know general common sense. Mm -hmm. Admit that you ran over this kid in the 1984, and then swallow some broken glass, and you you know you cathartically feel okay. You'll thank Jigsaw for it. So Mr. Blue tells Mr. Gray to leave the wo woman alone, and he's like, "You didn't say the magic word. What's the magic word?" And he goes, "The magic word is money." And then Mr. Gray, like, snaps, too. No, he's right. Well, in 1998, it would probably be heroin. Yeah, man. Toronto heroin in the late 90s. So you didn't see the Walter Matthau film? I did see the Walter Matthau film. Oh, you did? Everyone wears snazzy hats. Yeah. They're all schlumpy. He's schlumpy. He schlumps around. I think they, they smoke cigarettes in the nerve center. And uh, at the end, he walks by a guy on the platform, and the guy sneezes funny, and he says, bless you. And the guy says, oh, thank you. And he goes, wait a minute, I recognize that. 
Wait. I recognize that sneeze. No, in the end, that happens at the apartment. Yes, that's right. They're they're off station. They made it to their destination. What about the Denzel Washington one? Well, it's been a while since I've seen the. Well, it's been a while since I've seen the other one too. Yeah, I think it's the same thing at the end. Yeah, but okay, so you did see them both, right? Right. This is the only Pelham I haven't seen. I've seen Pelham one, and I've seen Pelham one too. So Johnny, uh, uh, John Travolta in Denzel Washington's version is like a crazy, crazy, right? But in this film and the original, the guy's pretty, pretty cold, right? He's pretty, pretty to the point and calculated. I forgot Travolta's in that movie. God, it's so ridiculous. Okay, so now it's time to pee. So the boy goes to pee, and it's a number one pee. Oh, is this going to be on which rail? Don't piss on the third rail. The power that act two? Power's off. Power's off. Boy. Oh, okay. Are they going to the restrooms in the subway station? But what we're going to get right. here this is the transit worker. Uh, she starts to soft talk uh mr brown it's like look at the necklace oh. which is an ak-47 and she's like what does that make you tough are you bad i used to be bad i was so bad i lost my kid now i got a job i got my son back you could be on the good yeah. too girl yeah but mr brown's not taking it huh? yeah mr brown takes it mr brown tries to be tough but uh you know, it's hard around Babs. She's very convincing. A lot of people say my AK-47 necklace is a conversation starter. Thank you. <laughs> now, um, Mr. Brown was all over TV um, in the 90s, and it sort of seems like she's gone back to Canada now. But she was in... Um, Silver Surfer TV series, just one episode. She was in ER as a doctor. Uh, she uh. was on the um, D Total Recall 2070 Highlander. There was a silver. She was on a TV version of Highlander. She was in a TV version of Total Recall. Silver Surfer? Yeah, Silver Total Recall. Mm hmm. And there's a 2019, well, no, that's today. Um, right. She was in the Firm TV series for two episodes. That's nuts. She's come up with your own stuff. Why don't you do something original, lady? She's taking whoever answers the phone, and I'm with her on this. So now she's <laughs> like in uh, back in Canada with the family, but she's totally into yeah. acting still. Uh huh. They're calling her up and like. Do you want to do Steel Magnolias? Yeah, fuck yeah. That's all I've been waiting for all my life. Great. Like, okay, did you ever hear of Impulse? It's on YouTube Red. Impulse? No. There was a Timothy Hunter movie called Impulse where a town does whatever it wants. Like something possesses the people and they, they like pee in the middle of the street. What is <laughs> really? that YouTube Did movie? I see it? Yeah. What year? I don't know. You got like 81, 82. Like suddenly the town, like you know, they fuck each other and they like they do whatever they break glass and whatever pleases them. They just do it on an impulse. 
Interesting. Yeah. I don't know if it, I mean I haven't seen that movie in a long time. I, I think I just remember the trailers. So in in twenty nineteen she was in Ransom. Um was a TV version of the movie? Yeah, TV, I don't know, but it what it is a TV series. So like she had a lot of gigs in the 90s and then it's like it feels like time to raise children cuz she went away for about 15 years uh, and then she had how, how, more work nowadays. I don't understand like did the producers uh, the showrunners were like this will be a great 6 season run of Hostage of Ransom. Yeah, right. They yeah, still we'll have the kids. Yeah, Oh, welcome to season two. They abduct another kid. <laughs> right. Like, oh, they're sending your child. We're sending him to college. <laughs> <laughs> For four years. Now he, Season five. He, your kid graduated. Now here comes the guy who was like, I'm going to find out what's going on down there. Never mind. It took him all this time to finally walk down there. But uh, Donnie's going to totally yeah. shoot him. Uh-oh. Don't mess with the other Wahlberg. Get your poop on Grant's tomb. Yep. I'm the line superintendent. I'm coming on board. I want you to stop it. So the line superintendent uh, gets his. Good. I warned you, Wow. Shot a machine gun in a subway station. Pa pa pow. Hot gun, hot gun. Yeah, he's all business in this movie. I think he's the only actor who's walking. Everyone else is just sitting around yelling at the microphone. There's another flip on the screen. This one? As far as I know, yeah. So their radar detector is really helpful because it lets them know who's coming. And, of course, they didn't have that in 74 version. No, yeah. And well, I in 2009, they had 2009 version either. And did the 2009 version, like, everyone's, like, going on their cell phones, and they're like, what happened? We connected the, disconnected the router or some shit like that. I don't remember. I was, did see that film. There was also this interesting subplot in which he got a bribe, you know, Denzel Washington. Remember, Denzel Washington wasn't a cop, right? He was, like, Mr. Right. Blue said, I like you. I want to talk to you. I'm not talking to the negotiator. It was different. Huh. Yeah, I see what you're saying. He was just an everyman, Denzel Washington. Like, how people mistake me for Denzel. <laughs> when, when they always have, like, uh, an A-list celebrity playing, like, an average show who gets mixed up in something, I'm always like, yeah, the average show looks like fucking Denzel Washington. Right. Great job. Mr. Handsome. So... Yeah. They find out that poor Chaz Holloway has been shot, and everybody in Command Central's freaking out. Oh, not he owed me money. I'm never going to get that money back. Now we're getting more of Bab softening Mr. Brown. You think you're yeah. a badass girl? <laughs> Is that what you say? Yeah. Yeah. Listen, lady, I don't believe in Christ. We stopped talking to me. I had my stops next. Right. Uh, 
You know what? If someone like took over the BART station, no one's gonna notice. You know, they'll go in the the train. Uh, excuse me, everyone. Excuse me. I don't mean to take up any of your time, but uh, we'll be taking over your train. <laughs> oh, good. First I thought you were a panhandler. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought you were gonna, thought you were gonna dance while while the train's going. By the way, it was a 1993 Colin Ferguson shooting. Now, I know you don't know about that, but someone listening probably does. That was a big deal, that uh, that incident. And they reference it in the, in the 90s television straight-to-DVD version. Okay, so I missed it, but uh, Mr. Gre- uh, Mr. Bl- Green was just freaking out. Huh. So that leads them to say, this guy sounds like a disgruntled former worker. Can I have a list of all the people who got fired, you know? And they start to right, right. break down. Um, who could it be? Now we learn something that's a plot point that's not going to lead to anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. There is an undercover cop on the subway. But she, I got to tell you, she does not do anything. In the way end, she has a role and she shoots somebody, but she's hardly a player. Now he's, oh wait, New York freak out. Here he goes. She, he said the F word and they blanked it out. Wow. So this was maybe, do you think this was theatrically released? Uh, no, I think this was on ABC and I think they just, he's supposed to be a New York person. But he says something ridiculous. He says, I never thought talking to a murderer would take precedent over running a railroad. I mean, it's it's a dumb thing to say. Doesn't make any sense. Oh. Okay, now that young boy we saw, not only was he young Tony Soprano, but he was also Howard Stern in private parts as young Howard Stern in 1997. That movie was... Wow, I can't believe that movie was only 1997. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember when... That Howard was taken to his father's work and that guy started freaking out and breaking records. And right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Howard's father goes, I order you the power invested in me from the federal communications. That he was young Howard gawking, you know, watching. Okay. Yeah, I remember that. Learn that within a 10 block radius, there's like 20 different places you could access the street. And that's for safety, but it sure does help a hijacker, you know? Oh, it's a good, and there's Starbucks in every corner, so they can get probably get a frappuccino whenever they want. Now, here's something ridiculous. This guy tells the SWAT guy to go downstairs and then take him out. But that doesn't happen in the plot. But it is what he says. That is his line. And he sends the SWAT team down, and all they do is... Like, observe. They're called snipers, is what they're called in the 
in the teleplay. Right. Now, a New York City car would have the number on the front of the train. That is one thing I notice that's different from a Toronto car. You would be, you'd see a big circle with the letter three, number three, um, letting you know what train was coming. Well, I mean, you could just tell by the sound if you're a real New Yorker. You like that sounds like the Pelham too. I uh, no, you cannot, Mike. Uh, no. <laughs> It sounds like a train coming down the track. <laughs> oh, listen, when I'm in uh, San Francisco, I could tell, like, you know, the, what BART's coming, whether it's the Richmond train or not. Mm-hmm. I just close my eyes and uh, try not to get thrown into the train, and I could hear it. Yeah, you could just feel it. They announce it. They announce it. <laughs> That's how you know. Yeah. They'll say... Next train. That fuck. So now we're getting the backstory of why he got why he's disgruntled. Um, There was like a um, there was like a train driver who was like contracted with the mob, and they would give him some drugs, and he would take it down the line and hand it off to a contact. And they framed him for it, so he's all bitter. Gotcha. So now, well, what a way to almost is like, hey, there was another voice on the line. Let's hear it back. And this is when they figure out it's some disgruntled guy. Sneeze. Flatbush. I mean, that so describes the woman of today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was just about to say that. Sometimes. I that's what my tattoo. <laughs> Man, he almost has not stood up. No, he did. He was standing in the beginning of this movie. He hasn't left the center yet. Now, his this actor, who's just the disgruntled guy, his name is Richard Schiff. And um, he was on West Wing. People know him from that. He got an Emmy Award. Um, But he was actually like a director and producer. And then he tried his hand at acting. And the very first time he did, well, I could be wrong with the very first time, but very easily, Steven Spielberg just happened to watch this TV drama High Incident and liked him and cast him in The Lost World for Jurassic Park. And that led to him being cast in lots of stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Oh, yeah, Spielberg likes to watch crap, you know. Yeah. Get inspired. I'm sure he was just sitting around, you know, you know, whatever, poolside, having a And some show. I'm sure the guy's manager. I'm sure he's somehow, like, they, they pushed him and they just said, I can't imagine. Now, um... He, I don't know his name, so I keep on calling him Gomer Pyle. Vincent D'Onofrio. Um, DiCaprio. Vincent DiCaprio. He was also in uh, 2015's, uh, you know, the Jurassic Park series, Jurassic World in 2015. Oh, yeah, right. 
Oh, wait, 2015, so he was in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my he son the dinosaur. is a fan of Jurassic Park, and he says that the new ones, he just doesn't even care. They're not associated with the old ones, really, you know? Yeah, no, they mentioned, like, previously, we had tried a park, and now, welcome to the world. They, right. they kind of referenced in that one. That was our first try. Yeah, you know what? The second Jurassic World is like uh, kind of felt pointless, you know. Yeah, well, the wow, second one start. was when it goes to Los Angeles, and it was directed by Steven Spielberg. It was, but you're right; it's just Wait, sort of like a money maker. Oh, so you're talking about Jurassic Park three? I was talking about Jurassic World two, but yeah, I guess you're right. Okay. That was directed by Spielberg. The third, he did the first two. Jurassic Park was the first one, of course, and then The Lost World, yeah. which is when he goes to Los Angeles. That was the second one. That was right, right. the third one. Was yeah, with, I do just um, uh, Sam Neill, the, the yeah. boy from the first movie, Lost. Um, and that was also just for money, but it was a good one, I felt. But it was also not Spielberg and just for money. Yeah. But world is kind of I don't know world's all right it's tolerable but then by the second second world you're just like okay enough I don't yeah. need another fucking franchise making money okay now she's singing to the kid and Mr Brown freaks out call nine one one when you go to the phone to pee. She's really pretending to freak out. She's acting, acting. Huh. And Donnie tells her to get it together. Hold it together, girl. Was he in Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch? Was he in his brother's group? No, he was a new kid. You're right. He was a new kid. Excuse me, new kids on the block. Related to is Mark, is he? Mark Wahlberg and Donnie Wahlberg, they're brothers. Really? <laughs> but what an yeah, age. Yeah, and they have another brother. Huge age and their other brother has hamburgers. Donnie Wahlberg and Mark Wahlberg are related. What made you think otherwise? Uh, because of the age difference, because of the years between their fame. Unless I'm wrong about that. Well, one was in New Kids on the Block, and the other one was in the Funky Bunch. That was concurrent. Okay, I guess so. I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a definite uh, not paying attention. Oh, well, of course not, Mark. <laughs> uh, Mike, what are we talking about here? We're talking about New Kids on the Block, and we're talking about an advertising, yeah. right, an underwear commercial. Of course I wasn't paying attention. No, no. That was a <laughs> right. He was a well, yeah, yeah. But the songs are separate. I mean, he went on tour with it. It wasn't like uh, he he did have this underwear promotion. But listen, okay. Anytime I'm watching the TV and it said "New Kids on the Block," I'm flipping the channel. Uh, you know that. I mean, we were into the Clash and uh, the Jam, and right. you know, we were not looking at. I remember on Fishburgers, you said you're a new poopy head on the block. I mean, th that band was a joke to us. Of course, I wasn't paying. Fishburgers, of course, the public access television show we did in 1990. 
Everybody uh, knows for, that. For our new listeners. <laughs> yeah, go to our YouTube channel, Fish Burgers, and check us out originally. But, you know, there was that boy band phenomenon There was uh, and the new kids brought, and I guess a uh, new addition. Look, uh, if I grew up in the 60s, I wouldn't have been paying attention to the Osmonds. You know, it's it's the same thing. Uh, <laughs> new kids on the block. Who cares? I don't know one of their songs. Do you know their songs? Yeah, Hanging Tough. Hanging Tough. <laughs> Am I tough enough? <laughs> okay. Yes. I have to Google that or YouTube it. Hanging yeah. Tough. Am I tough enough? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Once you go to a record store and ask them if they have a copy of Tough Enough, or am I tough enough, please? Okay, so I would like to be very angry at this film because they have have a Jewish stereotype on the train. And he talks like this. Hello, I am the Jewish stereotype. So he goes to Gomer Pyle and says, hey, can I ask you how much you are getting? You know? And, and these guys like, it's none of your concern. And he goes, a man likes to know what he is worth. I just think it's very insulting. Yeah, well, it is New York City, so of course, uh, you know, you can't throw a dead, swing a dead cat without bumping into a New York Jew. But the thing is, I can say that. why make the New York awesome. Jew care so much about money? And as a matter of fact, when the guy tells right. him $5 million, the Jew goes... Each? And he goes, no, in, uh, in total. And he goes, I'm not worth very much. I mean, it's it's so... It, you don't feel insulted. I'm not even Jewish. And I feel insulted by that. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, well, someone has to bring that up. How are we going to bring up their salad? I know, how would you ask them? <laughs> okay, he asked for $5 million because he knew that that's what could legally... Oh, by the way, he said hundreds and fifties only, and there's a bunch of twenties in here. He's gonna be pissed. Um, it is a New York TV movie budget. He, he knew uh, what they could get together without like heavy authorization. He knew that five million dollars was the highest he could ask for and get it in one hour. That's why he chose that money. Oh. And that's the scam. Well, why can't they just drive the money train over? <laughs> the money train? Yeah, you, you've seen the movie The Money Train? There's a money train in the subway station that goes around and there's money in the train. They call it money train. I think I – that sounds very familiar. Is it a movie? Yeah, Woody Harrelson, Leslie Snipes. Should I see it? There's some con – no. Good. Right, if you have TBS, I'll put it there. But it was uh, it had some notoriety because there's a scene where they I think they throw acid or something on a uh, on a ticket seller and uh, and the booth and they said oh no real life don't do that don't do that in real life we're just a movie we don't want to encourage anyone now there's sir we see her every now and again she's a female in the center now what happens is a car crash there's an accident. You know, because they said we have to have this money in one hour, and you know this is like another uh, trouble in the you know making it hard for Edward yeah. almost. Now, did they just crash into a bunch of mannequins? Mannequins, yeah. 
Boy, you know how that can dent a vehicle. Oh my goodness. How many, what's the casualty count? The casualty count? Let me count the bodies. Well, we killed Mannequin and Mannequin 2 on the move. Forget the health of the drivers, get the money. By the way, the internet said it was very important to let you know these are Toronto motorcycle uh, cops um, vehicles, <laughs> not New York. New York motorcycles look different. Do we care? Gotcha. Yeah, I guess. I know that really. Did you ever see Jackie Chan and Rumble in the Bronx? That was shot in Toronto. Oh, was it? Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it keeps going to Tim Hortons. All over the place is like the Toronto subway map on this car, but like you can't ever really see it. But the internet also thinks that's important. Like it's a big gaff that the Toronto map was all over this New York City car. Huh. Oh yeah, that's another deep. That's probably why I never got the HK release. It's a we we're too embarrassed. We can't release that. So of course it's like. There's been an accident, and Mr. Blue is like, that's not my problem. I'm going to kill a hostage, uh, you know, for every minute that the money's not here. Right. Now, of course, he's got 14 minutes. Now, look, it's ticking down, and it's going to be time to kill a hostage now. What a bummer. So this is my least favorite part of my job. It's the worst part of the job is actually having to kill a hostage. I remember. I mean, it gets easier, right? As you kill more hostages, but so Edward. It's almost, a lot easier if you. Edward almost yeah. gets the 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 good idea to lie to him. The money has arrived. Money. He just wants to have them not kill a hostage. Oh, well, good thinking. It is, actually. You didn't do it. Yeah. It wasn't bullshit. You just made it, didn't you? Yeah. Where's my money? Yeah. Here's the next instructions. You are to send two unarmed <laughs> So he's going to make them believe that they're going to ride the train to where an armored car will take them to a gassed-up airplane for an international flight. And um, that's not the truth. They're really going to get off the train and have it go automatically and make it seem like, um, you know, while they walk away from one of those 20 exits uh, in a 10-block radius. So that's the big plan. Right. Now, they're stalling because the money really has just arrived. Those are all Toronto buildings, by the way, with the 28. Who do those officers think they are? Do you think they're Mr. Moneybags or something? Mr. Moneybags. <laughs> okay. The, Remember when I, yeah. There's somebody, the motion detectors has detected somebody in the, on the tracks but it's way too early for the money to be walking down so we find out that it's dumbass tv news people trying to get a scoop now here we have a cop fantasizing that he's shooting 
someone on board. Wait, let's see. Hold on. All right. Oh, they got the press in there already. Yeah, I might have told. Oh, there he is. See, the cop, right? He thinks he's all alone. Yeah. So he's pretending, right? He sees Mr. Brown. So he's like, and he blows the smoke off his fingers. Watch. There you go. <laughs> professional. So then he does the dumb cop move and makes a big noise and a whole bunch of, you know, he alerts the 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 kidnappers, the hijackers. Oh yeah. And for some oh, reason, because they see the camera. Start shooting. And while the current while the current affair records the whole thing. Right, current affair. Uh, hard copy. Covering the most exciting news of 1998. Oh, Mr. Brown is shot. She should have listened to Cobb. I, I see the regular life. I see it coming. Yeah. Wow, a little shootout. Now, what, what's your opinion about when TV remakes theatrically released movies? Like, I know there was a sequel to The Jerk called The Jerk 2, but sometimes they'll do, like, yeah, it's, it's T-O-O, The Jerk T-O-O. And the dog's name is, like, stupid. His dog's <laughs> name is not shit. Who's the hero? <laughs> it's a guy who's similar to Steve Martin. I mean, it's, it's, it's Nathan, but it's played by a different actor. Uh-huh. Oh. And I, I think they just actually do a PG version of a G version of the, the jerk. It's on YouTube, I believe. Interesting. That might be our. Oh wow! So stop. Okay. That so might be our next Babs is like, I know first aid. I know first aid. And so she rushes over to help her. And what she does by helping her is say, apply direct pressure. That's all she does. <laughs> Disease head head on. I've got a headache. Well, I have head on. Rolling. Oh, Vince is not into it. Now, unfortunately for us, Mr. Blue realizes that since they killed one of, since they shot one of his people, he's got to retaliate. So even though we don't know it, even though Babs gets a sense of it, Babs is about to get killed. And everybody can tell. Yeah. He's like, come here, come here. I'm not going to kill you, psych. Uh, dead cop walking. Even the little people I know. Transit worker walking. <laughs> MTA. He goes, I want you to walk out there 100 yards and wait for them to bring the money, and then I want you to carry it here. And he goes, she's like, should I ask for a medic? And he goes, mm, yeah, sure. <laughs> Which, of course, he wouldn't say, bring a medic on our train, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just fucking with her. Now, yeah. even Mr. Brown knows what's going to happen, you know? Right. Uh, 
Can you sign my yearbook before you go? <laughs> before I go? Uh, I'll find it with me. That's the undercover cop, that woman. And she doesn't do anything, 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 anything until the way end of the thing. So did you know that she's like, I, obviously we're not really paying that thorough attention, but is it kind of tips her hat that she's undercover in the beginning? No, they tell us that there is an undercover, you know, in the control room, it's revealed that there's an undercover cop because there were two of them on the, they were like heading home and one of them got off. And so when this happened, he goes, she's on the train. But she doesn't stop when they kill a cop? She That's does. So crazy. Well, remember, you keep calling her a cop. She's a transit worker. Now she sees the dead guy yeah, I like that. You hear this? Uh, these musical tones? They were done by Stuart yeah. Copeland of the police. I saw his name there. That's crazy. He did this music. After the police. Uh-oh. Bam! Oh, no. What happened? That is wow. A, so after the police, uh, he, like Mark Ma, Mothersborough, whatever his name is, of the Devo, he went yeah, into Devo. music for films and TV shows, and he had a lot of success doing it. Right. So this must have been a quick job for him. Yeah, I mean, like, immediately after the police, he did, like, Rumblefish, and he tried to continue on in pop music, but it was not working out for him. Uh, he's no Sting, and uh, he uh, that's where he landed. And he had a lot of success. Did you... Now, he had a brother, right, Miles Copeland? It was Stuart Copeland and Miles Copeland. And Miles Copeland owned the record company, IRS Records. Uh-huh. Or Co-Rank. And the police was on IRS. Like, uh, did you ever see a movie called Arg, uh, Arg uh, Music War? U-R-G-H? It might just be, yeah, U-R-G-H, Ugg Music War. I guess no. It's good. It's really good. It has Devo. It has the police. It has, like, uh, Wall of Voodoo and the Go-Go's. And it's just all these... Uh, early 80s L.A. bands and international bands, and most and it was produced by Miles Copeland. It has a lot of IRS record label uh, people. The Cramps are in it. Oh, yeah, The Cramps. Can your pussy do the dog? <laughs> Can your pussy do the dog? The dog? Yeah, I'm a big fan of The Cramps. I'll see if that's a Netflix special. I don't know. Oh, I would I would definitely recommend it. Uh, it's a great movie. Oh, it's just performance after performance of different uh, different bands at different locations. Gary Newman. Wow. That's yeah. cool. Uh, here they are, last stop. Is it going to take a pee or what's going the, on? Uh, okay, they're using the cops. I mean, <clears throat> they're going to go get the money from the cops and they're using the kids so that two things. One is they don't shoot the hijackers and the second one is they're going to open you know if there's a die pack in the uh in the money yeah 
Okay, he looks like a record label, a record cover. Vincent, the lighting? Yes, uh, he does. And like, this whole thing, thing is sort of art directed that way. Um, the colors are very bleak. I think that's probably our our uh, YouTube version. Yeah, it looks much better in 4K. HD. We this received by critics. It didn't have high ratings. It kind of got forgotten about. It just seems like they had the title. You know, a lot of MGM movies get remade, uh, whether it's Point Blank or whatever, or, or RoboCop, just partially because they like to reuse the property. Uh, yeah. They, so someone probably said, they, hey. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the woman who did this teleplay is called April Smith, and she really hugged the uh, Peter Stone. Uh, the guy who wrote the 1974 one was called Peter Stone, and uh, she really stuck to what he did. She added stuff like the um, the subplot with Mr. Brown. She added the motion detectors, but I mean, pretty much she kept to the original film. Yeah, it was a book. Well, it was like a pot. Yeah, it was a popular paperback. Yeah. Um, under the writing pseudonym, the pen name of John Goody, um, it, this book was written. This guy's name was Morton Friedgood, and it pretty much, you know, was called The Taking of the Pelham 123. This director, he's just TV. He's, his name's Felix Enriquez Alcala, and all of his credits are, are TV. Crime scene oh, investigation. Yeah. Um, uh, his breakthrough was episodes of ABC's short-lived drama series Homefront. Uh, oh wait, no, he did the fire down below. He did do a, a oh, you know, with uh, Steven Seagal and um, yeah, Michael Caine. Yeah, Mike Sir Michael Caine says that. No, I love that movie. He, At the end, he was called the, the environment is good and uh, destroying the environment is bad. And yes. uh, people are trying to destroy the environment and uh, that falls under the bad category because it's, it's not good to destroy the. It gives a really long speech at the end. How much is enough? How much is enough? <laughs> yeah, you, you do a better job of it. I guess I never remembered any of that movie. I really like that because Michael Caine, you know, this guy was his trusted bodyguard. And all of a sudden he was like, how much is enough? And Michael Caine keeps looking at him like, uh, 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 what, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That was the best scene of the whole. Okay, so now he's explaining oh. himself. You shot one of my guys, I killed one of the hostages. You knew the consequence. And Edward Almost, I think it's very ironic his name, because he was almost famous. Yeah. You know what I mean? He never burst out. I mean, he, he was in movies. Look, he was Miami Vice. That's how we know him, right? He was the lieutenant in Miami Vice. He yeah, was in... Sure the Blade Runner films, but then he was in, like, even Cowgirls Get the Blues. He was in A Million to One. You probably remember that film, right? 
They, uh, yeah. Well, I think that's more stunt casting and even in capitals. But he's directed a movie, right? Uh, like, what was that? My American Life or something like that? And it was really good. I haven't seen it in a while. I miss. Uh, and he's he's in the news now. He's he's political. You know, he's a political. Uh, yeah. He's out there doing uh, doing stuff right now. So he's still in the news. Yeah, but when you see him now, he's got this like kind of cool older guy, white beard. You know, like yes, he, he does. wasn't clean shaven. Uh, almost that we see in this movie. I think the Green Hornet in 2011 was his last movie credit. Wow. No, well, he was a Blade Runner. Too. Yeah, you're right. Cause that was 2049, which hasn't even happened yet. Yeah. So you're right. Yeah, I'm up to it. Uh, 2017 was Blade Runner sequel. 2017. So yeah, yeah. So you're right. But of course he's gonna he's good. They're gonna put him in that. Of course. Yeah. Oh, they had Harrison Ford in there for no reason. Harrison Ford. I was really disappointed in that film because when I started watching that film, it was great. And it kept it yeah. all the way up until the um, police commissioner was like, we have to keep things as they are just for the heck of it. I don't know. The film started to deteriorate. By the time he found Harrison Ford, it's like you said, what for? What's the point of Harrison Phil Ford right. being in this film? It, it all just fell apart. He was, he was just sleeping on the same bench he was sleeping on in the Star Wars sequels. You know, they're like, yeah, bring him in. Yep. Get the camera rolling. Yes. Tickle his nose with the feathers and he wakes up. Huh? What's going on? All right, and that's a wrap of uh, Harrison Ford and Star Wars 8. Thanks, Harrison. Okay, so now uh, this special contraption so that they can run the um, train without a person really being there. Because they have something called, like, the dead man's, I don't know, the the person the operator has to have his hand on the thing or it's not gonna move in case the guy like falls dead you won't have some runaway train oh that's a good idea yeah it's good safety precautions so, i carry that when i commute i carry these metal bars in case this happens for the very reason okay so the metal bars are to get around that so they've got their money They've told them that they got to turn on all the lights so that they're green all the way along. Are all clocks right. Are all tracks clear? So it's going to make it look like they're making their escape to get to the armored car to get to the plane. But of course, it's just a route that as they walk away. Yeah, because all the cops have seen Die Hard, so they know they're just getting fucked over, they're getting tricks. We will be doing what we said, wink, wink. Oh, shit, why did I say wink, wink out loud? So he pulls out the um, receiver, and then Edward almost goes, he's cut the connection. It's kind of a joke, <laughs> but it's for the screenplay, you know, so... Right. Wow, look at these, a creeper on the bus. Yeah, well, that's the one he's creeping on before, 
And he did that on purpose to say to Mr. Blue, you can't tell me what to do. Yeah, you're not tough enough. Are you tough enough? Reference to a song I don't know. I can't believe you're not familiar with N-B-O-T-B. N-Y-O-T-B. No, N-K, New Kids. But why would you think that I would be familiar with them? They were a boys band. I wasn't a preteen right. girl. Yeah, but you were caught up in it, right? I mean, didn't you have the pajamas and the, the towels and the... <laughs> You've been referring to this movie as the New Kids movie. I mean, come on, give me a break. We should really watch the New Kids movie. Please don't subject me to that torture. Now, you pick the movies. If that's what you want to do, I will be there, but please don't. Yeah. Okay, there goes the train running itself, and the passengers are just oblivious, right? But the now there's the cop. Yeah, okay. Is that the Jewish guy? Yeah, and he's telling her, don't you go anywhere, bay, you lady. So now she hops off the train and she hurts herself. Yeah. This is why they keep telling you not to do that. Escape. And Richard Schlack is like, what was that noise? <laughs> They're doing what they said they were going to do. All no backstabbing. The dead man's pulley, the dead man's lever. Uh, I got it. Nobody's the, driving uh, the train, they realize, so we can get terror. What? Okay, $5 million so they can each get $1 million. That makes sense. Now they have to get rid of their coats. Right. They have to get uh -huh. rid of their firearms, and they have to get rid of their machine guns. Oh, so they're going to walk above ground as, like, human beings carrying all that money? We're, we're not criminals. We don't have no guns. Train out of control. Runaway train. Runaway train. Now, Donnie refuses to give up his machine gun. Oh, uh, yeah. He's a badass. Right. And he's like, hey, he made new kid, lose the lose the machine gun. He's so tough, he makes Skeet Ulrich look like Matthew Lillard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think he's tough enough. What do you think? You think he's tough enough? Are you tough enough? Boom, he gets shot. Oh, no. Look at that acting. He oh, fell. Instructions. I guess uh, you get $1.25 million a piece. They didn't hit the money, did they? Uh, no, we missed the bag. Like, why shoot a man who's carrying a million dollars in cash? Now they're putting two oh, wow, they're together, figuring out they must have beat the dead man's pulley thing. Like getting on the train. The train is moving. They 
<laughs> he figured it out. Now, the undercover cop gets her gun, even though she's all hurt because oh, she stepped off of the train. Right. And she shoots one of them. She shoots, uh, uh, I think it's Mr. Brown. Let's see. Mr. Red now. Mr. Red because of blood? Yeah. Got it. Or Pink Mist. Mr. Pink Mist. Boom! She shot. Oh. They heard the shot. And Why do I got to be Mr. Pink? Because you like the band. You like the singer, Pink. That's all you talk about. Because you like new kids on the block. <laughs> oh, that's a bust. Donnie, Donnie Wahlberg was on a bunch of TV shows, right? He's always one of those guys you just recognize on, like, procedurals or something. He was on a bunch of TV shows, and I have that written here somewhere. Uh, I'm not sure that not I was sure. so interested in it. Um, yeah, no. I I only wrote down that he was in uh, Band of Brothers. Uh, Zookeeper, Dreamcatcher, The Sixth Sense, Righteous Kill, Ransom... And he was in a bunch of TV, and I didn't write it down. Yeah. So now yeah. there's two of them. So they each get $2.5 million, I guess? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They must have spent an extra five minutes counting the money and then doing it. Thinking, Here, have another suitcase. But I think Mr. I brought this extra Blue. duffel bag. Mr. Blue does not come up. He goes over to the undercover police officer for some reason. He should have run away. Yeah, what's up with Blue? I thought he was the mastermind. I know. The thing is, what he should do, and this is what really happened in the 1974 one, too. He's now having a shootout with Edward James almost. Yeah. Uh, no, he's not. No, he's not. That's to come. Right now, he's like, I recognize you from the train. What are you, a cop? And he goes, the mayor's going to be at your funeral. <laughs> what, a New York City mayor? Fuck that current guy. Who was mayor back then, 98? Well uh, Giuliani? Giuliani, yeah. The mayor will come to your funeral. Giuliani? But he doesn't shoot her because Edward almost shoots him. Wow, almost as in two other scenes, two different right. locations. He's actually shooting guys. I don't think so he's bleached out. It's almost black and white. I know it's crazy. It's that '90s style. I guess yes. Everything, everything looks like a CD-ROM. You go ahead and shoot. Already. So are they using the same does, because all these cops are coming as he commits suicide by touching the third rail. Oh, I thought he was going to Mr. Blow his brains out. Blew his brains out. Mr. Blew his brains out. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Why would he touch the third rail? Didn't he read the sign? Don't touch the third rail. 
If this was San Francisco, he would have taken his shit in the, under the tracks first and then touched the third rail. He said, do they at the bar electrocute people in yeah, like, well, it's, oh, yeah. I should have worn Velcro shoes. He electrocuted himself. There's some cool shoes. <laughs> By the way, they do uh, have a death penalty in New York at this during this year. Really? Yeah, but he said they don't. Do they still execute people? And he said no. Runaway uh, train, runaway train. That's our third act uh, climax here. Well, they got like 10 more minutes. So. Yep. Short ride. Yeah, right, Canal Street, Christopher Street.